Amen. As we remain standing for the reading of the text this morning found in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, as we've been going through Matthew's gospel for some time, we come to a new section of scripture that begins the last teaching of our Lord in the way that Matthew has his gospel structure. As we come to this beginning time, um, this teaching, it will be with the intent that I bring more of an introductory message that will hopefully outline uh, for us some needed things, uh, thoughts for us as we gather our thoughts together around this passage, seeing where we need to be squared up with the truth of the Scripture. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 and uh, begin reading through Uh, verse 1 through 14, which will mark off that first paragraph of chapter 23. Now hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, saying, um, in seat, Therefore, whatever they tell you, observe. That observe and do, but do not do according to their works. For they say... And do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Let's pray. Our Father, this day we have the Word of Christ before us, and we need your Spirit to give us the discernment to understand these things spiritually. We look unto you who is the author and the finisher of our faith, O Lord, that you would revive these words that you spoke many years ago, of which Matthew penned them down under the inspiration of the Spirit. Now here we are this day hearing them afresh, and we ask that your Spirit now would guide us to make it fresh to our souls and turn our attention toward Christ. Lord, we pray that you would quieten down our minds that are being led away into other thoughts and distractions of the cares of the world or the things of tomorrow, and we pray now that you would take command of this time and that your Spirit would be poured out upon us. And fill this place with your word and your glory. We pray that you would work in our hearts. And that we would be attentive to the word preached. That we would not be mere hearers of the word, but we might go away being doers of the word. And so we ask that your spirit would press upon each one of us in that private way. Down in the recess of of our heart of hearts to square us up with the truth. May we know the truth, and the truth set us free. And may we stand this day in the liberty wherewith Christ has set us free, and be found in Him abiding, and Him in us abiding, and bearing forth the fruit that would please and glorify Your heavenly name. Lord, we pray that You would be with the preacher as he preaches these words this day, and may this be with power of the Spirit and not with the strength of the flesh. And we pray that you would work in our midst. Lord, as often that there is in the preaching of the Word, there is a spiritual battle that's going on between light and dark, 
between right and wrong, between those things that stand against the word being preached, the principalities and the powers that do work in this world, and they often work in the minds and hearts and actions of men. And we pray that you would protect us from this battle in this time, that you would remove from us those spiritual forces of darkness and those principalities that would seek to pluck out the word that has been planted, that it would seek to grow up around the word, the thorns that could choke it out. We pray that the word this day would fall upon fertile ground that would bring forth much fruit. Lord, whatever is necessary now in this hour that you must do to make this effectual, For your glory, we pray that you would do it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As I mentioned, we enter into a new section of Matthew's Gospel. As we had mentioned at the beginning of this uh, series, that Matthew has divided his section up into five different narratives, each followed by a teaching Chapters 23 through 25 are this last teaching. We often think of the last teaching of being the Olivet Discourse in chapter 24 and 25, but the way that Matthew structures it, chapter 23 goes along with it, and immediately follows upon the narrative of where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey in chapter 21, and from chapter 21 and 22, we see that Jesus, in this most climactic time, He is presenting himself as the messianic king openly and and clearly. The theme of chapter 21 and 22, after he enters into Jerusalem, has been the rejection of him as the messianic king and primarily by the people that he came to, and that was the Jews. So the theme of those two chapters has been a rejection. Religious leaders immediately began to question his authority by which he does these things. And he answers them in a series of parables. And he brings those parables to a head with even focusing upon the son of a king. And the rejection not only of the son's marriage, um, but uh, the, the great festivity of which the father then prepared for the son's great marriage at the, at the wedding reception, and if the, if the Pharisees had not known by that time that they were speaking of them, they certainly knew, uh, well, they did know that they were, he was speaking these parables against them, but if they had not known that he was the son of which they were referring to, it would become clear very quickly. As the, we entered to chapter 23, we will read one of the most indicting chapters in the entire Bible. If you would notice there with me, we just glance over this chapter here at the beginning of it. Notice the woes that he speaks. Verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Then notice the words that then come down in judgment there uh, toward the end. He says in verse... um, Well, let's pick it up in verse 34, Uh, verse 35. And on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then he laments over Jerusalem. Jerusalem... Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you as children together, 
as hens gather her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And then he's going to make a very profound statement. Your house is left to you desolate. There's a reference there, I believe, even to the temple. For I say, you will see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a very uh, strong passage. And then it goes right into the Olivet Discourse, of which we will see uh, prophesies of of a tremendous judgment of God upon the nation of Israel. The theme of these three chapters, which marks this last teaching in in Matthew's Gospel, is about Jesus' judgment. As Israel's Messianic king, whom they were rejecting, he will come and he will judge them severely for their rejection. There are two main things that I would like for us to consider as we go through these chapters. There's, I'm sure, more than those two things, but I do want us to consider this morning. We need to check ourselves to see if the Jesus that we believe is the whole Jesus of the Bible. Jesus is God, and Jesus is a loving Savior, but He is equally a rightful judge. He is both to be loved and to be feared. And as the way that we believe Jesus, the way that He is portrayed in all of the Scriptures, as He is portrayed in chapter 23 through 25, do do we believe and embrace Jesus as the Jesus of the Bible here? A second thing that I'd like for us to consider as we go through chapter 23 particularly is that there are some modern parallels that we see in the church today with ancient Phariseeism in Jesus' time. As we go through, even this morning, and I began to unfold some of the rise and emergence of this, uh, this movement of the Pharisees, See if you can identify in your own mind's eye or in your heart or your thinking ways in which we are like the Pharisees that Jesus is rebuking. See if there's ways that we corporately or as the church or even in the Reformed community or um, Heritage Church are like, in many ways, the Pharisees. That Jesus is rebuking. Or perhaps maybe make it more personal. How am I like this in my own heart? And consider then what I need to do to repent and to change and to embrace the all-sovereign Lord Jesus Christ, our loving Redeemer, our faithful Judge. So as we enter into this next section, I want to give us some background And I contribute a lot of this that I'll be speaking about this morning to uh, copious notes that I took from a a seminary professor, and I'm kind of regurgitating some of this back uh, to you this morning as we consider these matters. But as we think, I think it will help us to see against this chapter and the background out of which Jesus is primarily speaking, because he His subject matter here in this chapter is the scribes and the Pharisees. And while he is just speaking, verse 1, to the multitude and to his disciples, obviously the scribes and the Pharisees are in his presence, and that is the one he is primarily addressing. He says in verse 2, these are ones who sit, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Moses' seat is the seat of authority. These have been Jesus' chief antagonists, these scribes and Pharisees, throughout his earthly public ministry. And with them, Jesus has also been the sharpest in his rebuke and the strongest in his confrontation. 
I dare say that if we were to track how Jesus addressed the Pharisees and how we think about what Jesus ought to be, some of us might be offended when we see him storm into the temple, take time to make a whip and drive out the money changers in righteous indignation. Or how he confronts the Pharisees to such a degree and the strength of which angers them. And he does not relent or apologize for the words that he spoke. See, Jesus is God. He's righteous and perfect in all of his goodness and all of his character. And yet he can, he can love and he can touch and he can heal and he can save. And he is all of these things, meek and lowly riding on a donkey, sovereign king over all the nations. And we are bidden in that psalm too to kiss the son, lest he be angry. And so as we do this day, we bow our knee to our great king, having been thankful that he brought us out of darkness into light, and we can thank God that he has borne all of our burdens upon his son, and we can come lovingly, and fearfully to our great God and King, this sovereign master over our lives. As we see in verse 3, notice what Jesus says about these scribes and Pharisees. He says, therefore, whatever they tell you to do, observe. That observe and do, but do not do according to their works. For they say, and they do not do. And what we see that he says about them is that these are the leaders of the nation of Israel in the seat of authority, but they are unworthy of our consideration and imitation. He commends their instruction. Let's be careful to embrace that. But he condemns their action. And I think it would be helpful if we understand that Pharisaism was a good movement gone bad. And there's a tendency on all of us, particularly for us in leadership, to fall into devolution, to disintegrate. And so there are lessons here for us to consider. But it is, it is particular upon us all not to fall into the same kind of trap. Phariseeism has some legitimate religious concerns. And it's, this, this movement sprang out of good soil with good motives and good intentions. And as we consider some of the good out of which it sprang, we also need to consider over time how it went bad. And I think that will be instructive to us. There are a lot of parallels, as I mentioned, to modern evangelicalism, to ancient Pharisaism, and perhaps maybe some strong parallels here at Heritage that we need to address. So by learning from the past, hopefully it will keep us from uh, old errors, or we can be instructed anew and fresh so that we don't repeat those same errors. Or perhaps maybe it's exposing chinks in our armor where we are falling short, and it will help illuminate areas where we need to trust Christ and repent of our sins. Phariseeism was a movement that began in the second temple period. And the second temple period, you, you might recall, is, which goes all the way back 600 years before Christ to uh, the 6th century, when the second temple was built after God's people had been captive, captured and taken off to Babylon. And the Babylonians had destroyed the first temple, Solomon's temple, and then after 70 years, people began to go back, and God released people to go back and rebuild the temple. And there were several of those prophets that spoke during this time that were encouraging them to get on with this work, because when Messiah comes, he's coming in his temple. And this second temple period of reconstruction, the temple was finished you know, five or so hundred years before Christ. And then Herod uh, began to embellish and enlarge the temple, of which when Christ was living, his disciples saw the, the Herod's um, enhancement of that second temple. 
And that second temple period went from the 6th century B.C. all the way up to A.D. 70 when it was destroyed by the Romans. And out of this second temple period, which began in the 6th century B.C., we see some legitimate concerns and good concerns springing out of uh, the, the, the ground, if you will, of the heart of recovering some of those things which had been lost. And let's consider the emergence of some of those legitimate concerns and how these Pharisees came uh, to be. First of all, the, the Pharisees sprung out of a people and were in the, or, or their origins people that were concerned with the Scriptures. As you recall, 600 years before, or even a little before, they, the, the people, the nation of Israel were not disobeying or were, were not obeying the Lord. They were not living faithfully. And it was for that reason that the, God raised up the Babylonians, came in, raided Jerusalem, took them off in three different waves to Babylon, to the Babylonian exile. And this was God's judgment on Israel for spurning his words, his statutes, and his law. He had warned them of this all the way back into Moses' day in Deuteronomy, the latter part of that. But after the Babylonian exile and the people had been released from the exile, the, the, the rebuilding of the temple took place, and it was important to recover obedience to the word of the Lord, which led to their exile in the first place. And that was important for them. So about 50 years after that second temple was built, God sent a scribe named Ezra back to Jerusalem. And we are introduced to Ezra in the seventh chapter of Ezra <clears throat> when he came back in 458. He came back after the temple was built, about 50 years afterwards. And in Ezra 7, let me just give you a little bit of background here regarding what the Scripture says. This Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And King Artaxerxes granted him his request. And then Ezra came to Jerusalem, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach these statutes and ordinances in Israel. God was raised up, or God raised up Ezra to recover the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God, and to, to preserve the Word of God. Now, Jewish history looks back to the time that God did this in Ezra as the emergence of the school of scribes, who were a great assembly of scholars who would then preserve the scriptures and to teach them. These scribes were a subset of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. The Pharisees, for the most part, were, were, were laymen. They were businessmen. They had uh, other vocations, and, uh, and yet they were the religious leaders. But the scribes, for the most part, were professional Pharisees. They were the professional scholars and students of the word and of the law, and they were, they were in some ways, the scripture refers to them as lawyers. We see that term used in a previous chapter where a lawyer then brings a question to Jesus. He's one of the scribes. We see terms such as doctors of the law, which is used in Acts 5 of Gamaliel. These were scribes. These were the scholars of the law of God and a part of the Pharisaic uh, tradition. Now, the scribes were concerned with the integrity of God's Word, that it be understood by all of God's people, and that it be obeyed. And this was a legitimate concern, particularly in the context of what God judged them for in, the, in Babylon. So the first legitimate concern was the Pharisees sprung out of a group of people that had a legitimate concern for the Scriptures. A second legitimate concern that they had was for covenant faithfulness, loyalty to God's covenant. 
Now this was a concern, particularly when they were enveloped in a pagan culture, and it began, began to be very difficult to live faithful to a covenant in those contrary circumstances of life. You might remember Daniel and his friends were, were taken off in that part of the Babylonian captivity. They were taken and put into the king's court and subject to rituals and even the culture of this pagan culture. They were each named after pagan deities of the Babylonian gods. They were subject to uh, some of their, their food and the things that they were associated with. And as they were subject to these things, they found it very difficult to live in covenant faithfulness. You might remember that Daniel prayed three times a day, very faithful to the covenant, and it became that that was used to trap him and to send him to the lion's den. So these who were faithful to the covenant, they literally went through the fire in the lion's den for their loyalty to God living in a pagan culture. And everything that of their covenant faithfulness had to do with their identity as it relates to God. And it was very difficult. The greatest test for the people of God then would come in the 160s B.C., in the second century before the time of Christ. That was a time when the Greeks were ruling in the known world and they were ruling over the the Jews and the nation of Israel particularly. And in that time, there was a particular Greek ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was in power, and Daniel had prophesied about him in chapter 8 and chapter 11 of his prophecy centuries before. In 167 B.C., Epiphanes outlawed the practice of Judaism. He outlawed circumcision. He burned copies of the Torah when the Torah was the law of God, the first five books of our Old Testament Bible, the book of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And in 167, he he went in in an outrage and he stormed into the temple and right into the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, he desecrated the place by raising up an altar to Zeus and smearing pig's blood upon it and sacrificed pigs upon the altar in the Holy of Holies. And for some, that was the last straw. Now, centuries before Daniel, as I'd mentioned, had prophesied of this very desecration. Let me read just a couple of verses there out of Daniel chapter 11. It says, And forces shall be mustered by him, and he shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then shall they take away the daily sacrifices, and the place there shall be an abomination of desolation. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those are the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by sword, by flame, by captivity, and by plundering. Now what he's saying here is that during those centuries... Many of God's people would violate the covenant. But there are some people who know their God, who will be strengthened, who, who, who understand, and who are faithful, who will take action. And those who have insight will give understanding to many. And Daniel is saying that many would attempt to stand for righteousness, and by doing so, they would be persecuted and even killed for it. Historically, at this point in Israel's history, and corresponding to this desecration of epiphanies in the temple, we see the rise of the Hasidic movement of Jews. 
The word Hasidic comes from an old Hebrew word, which is dear to the Old Testament theology. It's a word, Heseth. Heseth was the word that it was a theme throughout the book of Ruth, of covenant faithfulness. When Ruth was confronted and, and she decided to go back with Naomi, she said, you know, your God will be my God. And your people will be my people. And where you go, I will go. And, and there we have a picture of Heseth, covenant faithfulness, loyalty. And, and this, this Hasidic movement was, was that which was of covenant faithfulness. And when the covenant was so violated, there were some who were so determined to be loyal to the covenant and from such a people, the Hasmonean dynasty arose. This was a Jewish dynasty arising in that second century around the desecration of the temple that stood up against the Greeks. During this period of time, it was a breaking point in which a priest from the family of Hasmon which was the family name, and his name was Mattathias. And he, along with his five sons, raised an insurrection against the Greeks. And one of his sons, Judas the Hammerer, as he's been called, Judas Maccabees, finally threw off successfully the Greek yoke and cleansed the temple. And it was from this event that, and from that time, that memorialized what the Jews refer to today as Hanukkah. Now this began about an 80-year period of time where an independent Jewish state emerged in the midst of this Grecian empire and dominance. And there were many Jewish fighters who then joined the Maccabeans that were Hesedim. They were referred to as Hesedim. This comes from that Hesed word and has to do with loyalty to the covenant. And they offered themselves willingly for the sake of the law of God. Covenant faithfulness. This too it was one of the roots out of which Phariseeism sprung. So far, we've considered two legitimate concerns that the Pharisees had, out of which were their roots. First of all, they had a legitimate concern for the Scriptures, and second of all, they had a legitimate concern for loyalty to God's covenant. Now, those were good motives, good concerns that they had. And a third legitimate concern was a separated life. The word Pharisee comes from the word which means to separate. And they were to be separate from the pagans and the pagan culture unto God as a separate people, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And that, we also see, was a legitimate concern. But it was a very difficult time for them to, to know how to live as a separate faithful people when they were engulfed with such a pagan culture. This was a time when they lived and the Greeks would build their, their bathhouses and their gymnasiums, and they built bathhouses and a gymnasium right there in Jerusalem. These were often places of immorality. And it was very difficult for Orthodox Jewish families to keep their young people, particularly their young men, away from these atrocities. It's a hard thing to keep a family separate and to live a separate way of life when you're so enveloped in pagan sinful lifestyles. Amen? Amen. Amen. And many of the Jews during this time capitulated. And it was difficult for them, and some, some of them just gave in. Uh, let me just stop for just a moment. Are, 
I want you to register these things. These, these are dots that I'm hoping will connect to some parallels that are going on today. Yeah? So, so be thinking through this actively. Out of this capitulating group of people of Jews that capitulated to the culture around them arose the Sadducees. As you might remember a few weeks back, I discussed the Sadducees, and they were primarily aristocrats in society. They were very worldly and secularized in their perspective. Even though they were still considered religious leaders in Israel, they were primarily the aristocrats that governed in the temple. The Pharisees were primarily with the populace out among the rest of Palestine, among the people. They were more of a democratic movement, whereas you had the Sadducees more of a hierarchical, aristocratic movement. But the Sadducees were more secularized. They were people who were willing to give away anything for the sake of getting ahead financially and socially and positionally. The Hasidim, however, were utterly inflexible. But they weren't always sure how to apply the law. This is what gave rise to notorious scribal debates over application of the law of God in the society and in the the circumstances in which they found themselves. They, they gave themselves over to scruples about how the law was to be lived out in these difficult circumstances. And they developed some oral guidelines, which was called halakha. And the, the halakha was this word which comes from to walk. We see in Psalm 1, blessed is he who does not walk in the way of the ungodly. And that word walk is the word halak. And halakha is this verb which means a walking out. They were concerned how to walk in the midst of a pagan culture. And they developed the halakha, which was uh, a way of walking no matter what the circumstances would be. And all of this was hotly debated. You might remember in the first century, you have two schools. Two schools of thought following two rabbis. One was the school of Hillel. Hillel was a rabbi and a school of thought of which the disciples followed. And these were more liberal in their approach. Hillel died in 10 AD when Jesus was just a child. But Shammai, which was the other school of thought, was was considered more the conservative school of thought, and he lived up until A.D. 30. Both of these lived contemporaneous with Jesus. Both of these presented a particular school of thought among these who debated now how you live out the law in the context of our society. We've seen references throughout the New Testament of the the debates of these two schools. It was after the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, the Jews were concerned with this halakha, the way of the walk in the world. And so in the decades that followed the destruction of Jerusalem, scribes joined together in forces to try to remember what those oral traditions were. The oral traditions that had preceded the time of Jesus, that were current in the time of Jesus, all the way up until A.D. 70. How do we preserve this oral tradition now of which our fathers had discussed in this time? Now the Jerusalem temple had been destroyed and the scribes are trying to recover what it was and how to walk out the law of God in every circumstance. And so about 200 A.D., those oral traditions were finally codified and written down in what we know of today as the Mishnah. The Mishnah was this oral tradition that had been circulating in the time of Jesus, even some before and some after. But now the Mishnah codifies the oral tradition and puts it in writing. The Mishnah now becomes a part of the central text of Judaism, which was known as the Talmud. 
Anybody heard these terms? I'm hoping that this will bring some clarity to some of these terms. It's relevant. Trust me, hang in there. The Talmud, which is the central text of Judaism, uh, is a compilation of certain things. In the middle of a page of the Talmud, you have in writing this codification of the oral traditions known as the Mishnah, the walking out of the Torah, the law of God. And then underneath that, uh, we, we have the Gemara. The Gemara were these comments, these, the discussion on the Mishnah. And there is the center part of a page of the Talmud, the oral tradition and the Gemara, the commenting, the discussion about those oral traditions. Surrounding each of those in different sized Hebrew fonts, you had these other squares of Hebrew Things, and these were writings or teachings of great respected rabbis about the central text of the Talmud. Right, are you following me? In other words, a lot of the, the rabbinic teachings about now the central portion in the Talmud, the Mishnah and the Gemara. So what you have is you have the law of Moses, the Torah, the, the actual scripture that God gave, gave to us. But in the Talmud, then you have the oral traditions of how, how do you walk that law out in life? And then you have the Gemara, which is the commenting section on that oral tradition. And then surrounding that, you have all of these rabbinic teachings of these very highly respected teachers uh, and scholars of the Jewish law. And what you basically have when you get it all said and done is you have a study Bible layered over another study Bible, layered over about two or three other study Bibles, and underneath somewhere is the text of Scripture. That's what you have in the Talmud. To this day, this is what serious rabbinical scholars have dedicated themselves to memorizing and debating in order to know how to live these things out in this ever-changing world. Now that gives us a feel today for the rise of Pharisaism and some of the good concerns that they had, a good movement, but gone bad. Because we're going to refer to it in coming weeks, I want us to be able to recall the good concerns that they had. They had, first of all, a good concern for the Scriptures. And second of all, a good concern for covenant loyalty. And third, they had a good concern for a separated life. Okay? Those are legitimate and good concerns. At the same time, we should remember there were also such things in that day as a good Pharisee. Yes, there are good Pharisees. I know we oftentimes don't think about it that way because they were, as a group, the Lord's chief antagonist. But we have a notable one named Saul of Tarshish who said, concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So concerning those things of good intentions, he was notable. But the question that we need to consider, are there parallels with ancient Phariseeism and modern evangelicalism today? And if so, where is it that the Pharisees went wrong, and where is it that we need correctives in our own lives today? And that's where I hope we can begin in chapter 23. Now, all of this is by and large an introductory message that will carry on forward in chapter 23, but let's just focus a little bit of time here in the remaining minutes on some of these things. Where is it that the leaders have gone bad? In Matthew 23.3 tells us it was in hypocrisy. Do the things they do, but not do what they do. Do the things that they say to do, I should say, but don't do as they do. For they'll tell you one thing, but they will not themselves do it. They won't even lift even so much as a finger 
to do them. And the cardinal sin that Jesus is impressing upon us here in this entire chapter is their hypocrisy. That seems to be the chief sin of the Pharisaic party. He calls them out to it. Now, notice the things he calls them in this chapter. He calls them blind guides. He calls them fools. He calls them uh, a brood of vipers or vipers. He calls them serpents. But he calls them, more often than anything else, hypocrites over eight times. Over 40 indictments does he give in chapter 23. And all seem to be some kind of variation on the theme of hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy comes from a Greek term that refers to playing the part, acting. It's an actor. It's play acting. It's knowingly acting in a manner that contradicts their beliefs or their professed beliefs. Knowingly acting. And that's why I want to clarify something that's very important as we get into this chapter. Hypocrisy is not merely inconsistency. I want to caution all of us about that right up front. There might be some prone here to label another as a hypocrite. Like if a child sees his father doing something that his father had previously forbidden the whole family, he's not necessarily a hypocrite. He might be grossly inconsistent, as we all are. Okay? We are all grossly inconsistent. But hypocrisy isn't mere inconsistency. It's dishonesty. It's when someone knowingly and willfully is putting on a mask, representing himself other than what he really is, and intending to misrepresent himself for the sake of having favorable opinions and good opinions of others. That's hypocrisy. And we want to be careful to distinguish it from the weakness of inconsistency, which we're all prone and subject to. And it's hypocrisy, the willful and knowing mask that Jesus is going after here. He begins in the fourth verse with their hypocritical demands. And he says there that, For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay it on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them not even with so much of a finger. It's the idea of laying up very heavy sacks of burdens, uh, like, like you might read that, that Pilgrim had to carry, and lay it upon the back, and in no way trying to help or comfort or encourage or even help out with the burden, much less bear one himself. Do what they instruct you to do. Do not follow their deeds. That's what Jesus said. So I want to clarify that what our Lord is saying here is one of hypocrisy, not one of inconsistency. But I want to clarify another point that I think is also uh, equally uh, important for us. Phariseeism is not to be mislabeled because they lay heavy burdens upon others. It's not the heavy burdens. And that raises a good question because Jesus is is not reproaching them for the heavy burden. He's reproaching them for the hypocrisy. It's not because they're making burdens too heavy. And the reason I want to make this impression this morning is because sometimes we associate uh, strictness with Pharisaism. The strictness of the application of the principles of Scripture sometimes are faulted as Pharisaism. That someone who is demanding their applications of Scripture is acting pharisaical if their applications are stricter than what we would appreciate or agree with. If, if they, or perhaps someone like us, 
wants to be more like Jesus than the Pharisees, be a little bit more broad-minded, a little more liberal, a little less burdensome on their demands of Christian living. See, you see how these things get conflated. But that's not the way we should think about Pharisaism. Jesus is not indicting them for the having burdens. In spite of that uh, very thing, Jesus did, did not fault them for that and oftentimes embraced the very burdens that they were teaching. For instance, down in chapter 23 here in verse 23, he's going to say that, you know, you tied the mint, the cumin and anise, and those things you should have left done, but you neglected the weightier matters of the law. Now, he's not taking away the lesser matters. He's keeping them in full force. They just don't do it. That's why he says in verse 3, do what they tell you to do and observe those things. Now, there are some clarifications that we've addressed already, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, that need to be qualified because Jesus does correct oftentimes their teachings. And we've already encountered that a number of times. The scribes have, however, this authoritative position in the seat of Moses. And with that in mind, they do teach, and we are to do as they teach, with some exceptions, okay? But drawing their attention to the authority... And as much as they were following Moses, they were to be heeded. Yet, yet, think about this. Moses himself put upon God's people burdens that were very heavy, even way before the Pharisees ever came along. That's what Peter affirms in Acts 15. He says, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Referring back to Moses. So we want to be careful not to draw a parallel of the heaviness of the burden being central to the theme of Pharisaism. Though acknowledging some of their applications were, were crazy and ludicrous, Pharisaism and their strictism is not to be rejected. I want you to think about Jesus for just a moment. Because there was no one person who ever lived who, who put more strictness and a burden upon anybody than did Jesus himself in his teachings. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus refers to all of these things and he takes it a whole notch above when he addresses the very heart. You have heard that it is said... Do not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you even look upon another woman in an adulterous way, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, you need to love your enemies. You need to bless those who curse you. You need to be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. He says later that men will give an account for every idle word that comes out of their mouth. There is nothing stricter than that. So I want us to be careful and cautious as we go through, not to fault the Pharisees for their strictness. There was no one stricter than Jesus. We don't want to release God's people from an exacting kind of life that is a, a self-denying, circumspect kind of life. A holy life in the midst of a pagan culture. That's not what Jesus is doing in this chapter. It's the hypocrisy he's going after. And he show, showed itself... When these men did not pick up the same burdens that were imposed upon other people's conscience. That's the problem. 
So if you watched them on the street corners, you heard them pray in the synagogues, it would have appeared that they were very demanding of themselves. But our Lord is going behind the scenes and He is showing us something of their private life that no human eye has seen, but He is now exposing their spirituality before us, the one behind the mask. He says they won't even so much as lift a finger to carry the kind of burdens they demand that you carry. They will not help you to understand. They will not comfort you. They will not encourage you. They will not help a single bit. And yet they are burdening your conscience with these very things. So we need to remember that when we read a chapter like chapter 23 and we give ourselves to the probing of it, we are letting Jesus teach us here. But we need to understand who this Jesus is who's teaching us. Embrace Him for how He's revealed Himself and make sure we don't confuse the things that He's talking about because Christ is magnified wherever He is taught. Now, while no one is more demanding of Christ in his concern over the Scriptures, no one is more demanding of us than Christ over covenant faithfulness. And no one is more demanding of Christ than to live a holy and separate life. Jesus was the most demanding in all of those. But on the other hand, No one lived a more exemplary life in everything that he demanded of us than he did. And this is where Jesus was no Pharisee. Jesus lived sinlessly. Jesus lived perfectly. He came to do the will of his Father, and he did it righteously. He was the perfect example of which all of the demands were placed upon us, were placed upon Him, and He carried all of the burdens that were bore upon us, and He then laid it faithfully. And then He died unrighteously because of what He did so perfectly. And no one is in a more position that he promises relief of all of our burdens that we carry to try to live this way and we fall so short that we cannot live the perfect life. We fall short of the scriptures of covenant faithfulness and a holy life. But he has been perfected in all of these things and he promises to us, if you come unto me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How can he say that? Once you feel the burden that he intends to build in your soul then Jesus takes the entire burden upon himself and bears it for you. You need to feel the burden. You need to know the burden so you can flee to the cross and know that Christ has fulfilled it all. In Christ, the law is fulfilled. In Christ, if you are in Christ, the covenant has been faithfully kept. In Christ, you have All that you need that pertains to life and godliness. He is our holy life. He is all in all. And that's why if we are in him, we are, as the scripture says, complete. Complete in him. The most demanding human being who ever lived is the one who promises by faith to give us the greatest relief from the burdens we bear. Would to God the Pharisees had just bowed their knee then. They will bow their knee. And how thankful we are that Christ has taught himself to us this day. Let's bow our knee to him now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. As he addresses this group of religious leaders in his day, 
We pray that over the course of the next several weeks, you would begin to expose where we fall short of your glory and square us up with the truth. That as the burden is laid bare upon us and we fall short of bearing it, we might take it to the foot of the cross and leave it there, knowing our Lord has borne it for us. We pray this day that he would feed us from the table and lighten our load. May we trust in him more fully. May our yoke be easy this day. And pray that our focus would be upon him and all that he's taught us here this day to the praise and the glory of his grace. In Jesus' name, amen.